It's almost criminal that here in the U.S. we pay our teachers so little that our government is currently trying to pass a bill just to get the minimum teaching wage to reach the national average for wages. These are the people responsible for making sure entire generations of kids grow up to be well-educated adults, and we aren't even paying them the average? Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough podcast, a show that acknowledges no one is always an expert by dispelling misconceptions with real experts. I'm your host, as always, Colton Petrie. My guest today is Natalie Parmenter. Natalie has officially held a degree in teaching for just over 10 years. But like most great educators, she has spent her whole life being a role model and helping people younger than her learn what she already had figured out. Her happiest years were spent with the youngest group of kids to go to school, kindergartners. And even though Natalie has since left the elementary school in favor of educating all ages with the YouTube primary focus, she brings an enormous amount of experience and wisdom for parents, grandparents, educators, or even just people who vaguely work around kids or teachers. I will say there is something so gratifying about seeing the light bulb come on when someone figures out a critical idea. It's so incredible that I literally use it in the official art for this podcast. So if you're an expert in anything at all, and you want to share that, email dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com, or send me a message on any of the social media pages. For now, let's grab a milk listen to this episode, and then we all take a group nap. Welcome to the show, Natalie Parmenter of Primary Focus. Hey, thanks for having me today. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. Why don't you introduce yourself for all the people out there? So I'm Natalie. Um, I run a YouTube channel and a newsletter called Primary Focus, and it's all about education news and tips. I send out the email weekly and come out with videos weekly to close that bridge between parents and schools. When I was teaching, I found there was a huge gap between parents and teachers. And when I moved down to teach kindergarten, I found this gap to be especially wide. So I would even find the most prepared parents. I had to read all the books, listen to all the podcasts. They all asked me the same questions. Uh, and there were even a couple of times where I would be out at a bar, at a party, and the parents of the three and four-year-olds would find me and say, oh, you're a kindergarten teacher. What do you know? Tell us about school. So I, I looked in some parenting groups on Facebook and on Reddit, and I realized that there's this huge land of misinformation with parents asking questions, getting answered by other parents with just their opinions. Um, and I was sitting there as a teacher realizing there's a completely different answer for what's going on here. Um, and the answer is either a lot simpler or, you know, just what different than what they were saying. So that's why I started Primary Focus originally to close this gap and let families know what's really going on in schools. What do you really need to be worried about? What can you do at home? And there's so much at home that you can do to support your child's education. Um, and then my journey's ending up 
it's changed a lot this year. I ended up leaving the classroom. So I work on primary focus um, almost full time. Um, and I am still connected with my passion to ch- working with children and supporting families, um, but do it through primary focus now. Yeah, and that's awesome. Like you, you have found your own way to keep that moving forward. What are some of those like misconceptions? I'm just really curious now. Yeah. Um, well, it's funny. A lot of people are really concerned about their child knowing how to read before they enter kindergarten. Um, and if you're listening in the United States, kindergarten is about five years old. It's that first year of of real school where you hit the ground running. We've got the alphabet. You're learning your math. Um, different from you know a preschool or pre-K program where there's still a lot more play-based. But a lot of families thought that their child needed to already know how to read, already need to know how to add and subtract, already need to know how to write or count to 100. And those are all the things that we're teaching in kindergarten. Um, so that's been a huge thing that I focus on is how to prepare your child for kindergarten um, with the life skills that they need and knowing how to share a little bit, knowing how to raise your hand or how to follow directions, those things are a lot more important than if you can read a chapter book or not. Is there like, can your kid be overprepared for kindergarten? <laughs> well, uh, I don't know if you can ever be overprepared, but we we did encounter kids sometimes that had mastered all the curriculum. You know, maybe their parents had gotten them into good tutoring or they were the product of a teacher. Um but the life skills that you gain in kindergarten are so important that even if you are already reading, um, they have a lot of social skills to learn. Well, that's good. I mean, it'd be really weird. You like have this kid comes in and just aces all the tests and is like, move me on. You're like, no, we're in kindergarten. You're not moving anywhere. Yeah. You know, it happens sometimes. I've had a few really advanced kids over the years, but Usually there's just so many life skills that you need. Like, you know, you might be able to to read me this book or write me a paragraph, but you sure you you certainly don't know how to share or um, you know, you're really struggling with the social skills. So they don't skip kids ahead like they used to. I think I always hear my grandparents talking about, oh, I skipped a grade or I was in college when I was 14 and all these stories, but Um, The focus in elementary school on maturity is so important now um, that they've realized it was a disservice to push kids farther along than they were ready, um, not academically, but ready social emotionally. Yeah, that's certainly like a large thing that I think comes across in elementary schools, right? Like that is elementary schools teach you literally all of that where they're like, you're going to understand the social systems while you're here. Oh, yeah, definitely. And um, I always say, so I taught first grade for a long time before I moved to kindergarten, the grade below. Um, And I always said, first grade is when you learn how to be a student, but kindergarten is when you learn how to be a person. And (laughs) there's just this huge awakening that the children have in that first year because they I mean, imagine spending your entire life at home. Maybe you get dropped off at karate from time to time, but you're just with your family unit most of the time. And then you get dropped off with two dozen other children who have also just shown up. It's it's a mess. So kindergarten is so much more than just the academics. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine it's hard to like break kids into that cycle, right? Because 
up to now their life hasn't had that kind of structure. And now you're like, oh, for the next 12 years of your life, at least we're going to be doing this thing, which is every day during the week, you're going to be here in a class with all these other people. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's a shock to the system for some of the kids, um, especially ones that maybe they come from a smaller family, so they really haven't spent a lot of time in crowds or with a lot of people sharing the attention. So, yeah, oh, there's, a, there's a lot of crying at first, um, both from kids and parents. Um, I feel like I used to give out as many hugs to parents on the first day, dropping them off as I did to the kids that were scared. <laughs> I'd be like, go ahead. There's a Dunkin' Donuts around the corner. Just go get yourself your latte and your donut. It's going to be okay. <laughs> um, yeah, there's, there's a lot to be... Uh, there's a lot of adjusting that the kids have to go through in the beginning. Um, just a lot of funny moments. I really, it's, it's interesting to me because you have to be careful as a teacher because there are a lot of things that at school, this is how we do things or this is how we don't do things, the rude awakenings that they get that are completely okay at home. Um, and so I really had to be careful with my language and say, at school, this is how we do things or this might be how we do it at our home, but at school, we keep our shoes on or, you know, at school, we plan ahead because the bathroom isn't always available. Like you need to go randomly throughout the day instead of waiting to the last minute because there's 24 of us sharing one bathroom. Um, so just a lot of uh, I bet you didn't think we'd talk about that today, but <laughs> I never know what we're going to talk about. And that is part of the fun of this this gig. So, yeah, I mean. I guess that is a thing because you're like, oh, well, why don't we just truck all the kids down to the bathroom anytime we need to? Like, well, because we don't have a bathroom that can handle that many people. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a mess sometimes. And I laughed so much when I taught kindergarten because kids just come in. And um, especially for me as the teacher, I was almost at times like a, an extra parent or they would teach, they would treat me with the tenderness that they would treat towards another parent, which is really sweet. But like, I, you can't touch my feet. That's weird in public. Um, or like, you no, you can't like, I can't hold you. I'm not going to pick you up and hold you, sweetie. Like this is, <laughs> and, and so there's just a lot of really sweet, tender moments like that where they're trying to show you their love or they're trying to get that affection. And, you know, you have to really toe the line between, you know, comforting what a child wants and like what is appropriate as the adult in the, in the room, especially knowing that they're going to, you know, if you pick up one kid, they're all going to be in line because they want to be picked up next. Or if you get something for one kid, they're all going to want it. Um, so really trying to think like, okay, well, a third of these kids have head colds. Do I really want to be giving out a bunch of hugs right now? Um, or can we find another way to share our love in this classroom? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a really good point, especially with little kids that tend to you know, not have any uh, germ awareness. Like, how often were you sick when you were a kindergarten teacher? I, I mean, can I count that high? I, <laughs> <laughs> I was always sick. Um, but what's what's kind of interesting is it's really as you change schools. Each school seems to have its own petri dish of of germs going around so the first year or two you're at a school you'll get sick a lot and then you seem to have 
gone through whatever germs are (laughs) populated at that school and it gets better. Um, If you ever are working with somebody that's brand new to a school or their first year teacher, they will go through so many more sick days than the people who have been established there for a few more years. But you take your Zycam, you take your vitamins and you push through, um, you know, because it everybody's always a little sniffly down in kindergarten. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it just moves from one of those like, oh, you can avoid being sick if you, you know, have all of your vitamins, you stay away from sick people. Then that works in the general world, but not in kid world where you are, you know, within one foot of them at all times. You're like, I'm going to get so sick. <laughs> Oh my gosh. And they don't know anything about personal space. And when they're sick, like I said, you're almost like an additional parent. So they want to be all over you when they're sick. And it was really, it's really hard sometimes because you can see that they don't feel good. And, um, but (laughs) I don't know, you just, you just get through it and you love them when you can. Uh, and you teach, I used to teach a lot of sign language for sharing love, you know, like a blow kiss or we had like, um, it's a podcast I can't really show you, but like I had some hand symbols for like, I love you or just sending you love right now. Um, so I relied on a lot of, um, secret messages between me and the kids so that we could avoid touching sometimes. Um, when they were sick and i mean i want you to know i was filled with love for the kids and things but <laughs> it wasn't like a cold closed off teacher by any means but you have to draw the line somewhere yeah of course otherwise you do become the third parent in the group yeah. the one with the least amount of say over things so what got you into teaching in the first place like what drew you into that career field you know i feel like i fell into teaching um but i all roads were also leading to it. So even when I was a child, I always loved working with younger children and started my babysitting career pretty early. Um, I remember like being in fifth grade and the younger children would be on the playground at the same time. Fifth grade, you're about 10 years old. So and wanting to play with the younger kids and show them how to do the monkey bars. So I always knew I wanted to work with children. And then um, I applied for colleges And between you and me, I was just kind of being uh, sarcastic. I didn't know what I wanted to major in. So I just picked education. Um, I didn't want to go in undecided. So I was like, well, I'm going to school, aren't I? I'll just pick education as my my major and I'll sort it out from there. Um, And I realized that summer I was at a family reunion uh, and I was at a funny age. I was, I think, 17 still. And I was pretty much the only person my age at the party. So I could, you know, go hang out with the 40 year olds or I could spend the afternoon like teaching the little kids how to jump off the dock. And so that's what I did. I I sat there and I floated and taught them how to jump off the dock in different ways. And as I was floating in the water, I just thought to myself, this is what I want to be doing. I, um, I'm having a really good time and I love seeing them practice the cannonball, practice the dive and the light bulb go off over their head that, they just are understanding this. So um, I knew it was funny because it happened backwards because I had already enrolled in the education program, but I didn't want it until that moment. And so when I started in the fall, I went to California State University, Northridge, go Matadors, um, which is a big state college in Los Angeles. Um, and I was in a program called the ITEP program where 
if you teach, you can decide in your undergrad if you'd like to teach. But a lot of people just do an extra year of school to get certification. So their major might not match. Um, their major might not have been in education, but they ended up becoming a teacher, if that makes sense. But this program was designed for people that knew they wanted to be elementary school teachers from the beginning. And so all of my studies had to do with education. And every semester I was volunteering and working in schools or doing um, observation hours and projects in schools. Um, and I just loved it. So and then I graduated at the height of the recession um, back in 2012. And um in LA and Southern California, they were laying off all of the teachers at the time. And I remember I met with a recruiter from LAUSD, which is, I think, if not the biggest, the second biggest school district in the nation. And I gave him my nice resume on resume paper. And it was a sad moment. He wasn't trying to be rude, but he he said, don't waste your nice paper on me. We're laying off all, all the elementary school teachers. And I it was a really intense moment for me, but I realized I had spent four years going to school. And if I wanted to teach in California, I would need to wait several years um, before there are spots for me. So um, I applied to a program called Teach for America, which is a service-based AmeriCorps program um, that places people in hard to staff schools, schools um, with high poverty rates and schools that really need extra support and have a hard time keeping staff um, and they sent me to Charlotte, North Carolina, and that's where I still live today. And um, yeah, I, I taught elementary school at my placement school and just kept going. Uh, I I loved it so much. And I still I've changed my career now, but there, I've got a lot of joy in teaching and it it, uh, it never stopped being old. I, I loved seeing all the little kids every morning and, you know, watching them learn and the same joy that I felt um, swimming at that family reunion. Um, I still felt every morning in my classroom as they came in with their stories to tell me and, and all the little things kids will say to you. Yeah, of course. And is that kind of why you chose primary education as opposed to any of the others was to see like those light bulb moments? Yeah. And I have, I loved um, the, like five to seven kind of age range where they they're still little and they're so sweet and they're still innocent. Um, I love working with kids be at that age because they're also capable of so much and showing them what they can do and empowering children in that way is just a really nice feeling for me. Um, I, I did teach fifth grade, which is the 10 to 11 year olds, my first year teaching. Um, and they were, they were great kids, but I think my personality is just suited more for working with younger children. There's in the world of elementary school, a lot of schools are kindergarten to fifth grade, um, kindergarten, first and second grade there, there's a divide between kindergarten to second grade and then the third through fifth grade teachers, a divide in personality. The kids need something very different. The third through fifth grade teachers are a little tougher and they, they're a little sarcastic with their kids. And um, there's just a different feeling. And then the K2 teachers are, they have a little bit of magic with their kids and they're sweet and they're, you know, ready for the hugs. And <laughs> my personality definitely fits down with the lower grades over the higher grades. And that kind of makes me think like, what do you think is the hardest level to teach at? Because when they're young, like, yeah, they do have all of this innocence 
they also have all of the energy of a young kid and none of the focus. And then once you get like all the way up into the higher grades through high school and stuff, like in high school, they become like very low energy, very like bad attitude. I mean, that was me. Like I wasn't a bad student by any measure, like as far as intellectually, I understood everything. And when I applied myself, I did very well. But that was kind of the core idea is like when I applied myself. Uh, I remember learning that lesson the hard way, too. <laughs> I have all these stories about going to college. I barely made it. <laughs> um, you know, it's hard to say because there are a lot of battles to pick. I would never teach middle school or high school. I just couldn't. They're they're mean and they smell and their problems are problems I don't don't want to solve. Like I don't know how to solve your drama or your dating problem or your hormone problems or any of that. That's not appealing to me. Um, I would like to read novels with you, but but all the rest that comes with it is not not for me because I can barely figure those things out myself. Um, that said, there's plenty of high school and middle school teachers that would tell you elementary is their worst nightmare and they would never do it. Um, but, but I will say not trying to flex or anything, uh, a lot of people, their biggest no in the world is kindergarten. And, uh, it is just such a huge transition year. You are working hard to civilize kids and <laughs> teach them how to function in public without their parents or their guardians nearby. Um, but it is also a really intense grade because of the families and all of what I was telling you about being at parties and having parents of three and four year olds corner me with a million questions. Um, that was working with the parents and uh, they're just there's just a lot of things to worry about with your child at that age. And I don't blame them at all. And I had all the answers. Um, but for a lot of people, I think that's very intense because I had a lot more emails in my inbox than some of the other teachers. And I had to do a lot of, okay, well, this might be how you communicate with people at your job, but this is how you communicate with a teacher kind of lessons, which is very strange to talk to an adult about. Um, so it, it's, it's tough because the parents have a lot to learn too, because they haven't been in elementary school since they were kids. Um, that that and then I also I hear that the high schools are having a hard time right now um, with all the phones in class and kids are just so completely glued to TikTok and their phones that um, they, you know, they feel like the Charlie Brown teacher wah, 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 um, <laughs> who can't get through to them. So <laughs> I don't know how to address that at all. But, you know, my kids didn't have phones, so I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, thankfully, I went through high school without smartphones being like a thing really i mean we had them but luckily i got away from that but even then like we were all so like disorganized and unfocused and like texting below the desk because i can remember like being able to text without looking at my phone which oh, yeah it's probably like a lost art today but it's i was we just nine buttons so it's like we can do that blind <laughs> I was just trying to describe this to a friend that's a little younger than me. I, I was like, I have the alphabet memorized. So if I was trying to text, it'd be like, okay, find the nine, one, two, three, find the five, one, two. Like I could tell you the numbers in my head of what I was texting. Oh, God. Old, getting old problems. 
Um, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, And I think that is like a big distinction. You know, if you are not super high energy and you can't keep up with all the kids like at the kindergarten level, then yeah, I guess that would be a real nightmare, especially if you're trying to like break them in socially and to the system as a whole. Like that's one thing. And then if you are not willing to be like very strict and very adult and very like serious, I think high school would be very hard. Yeah, there's it's very interesting because sometimes being a teacher is is like a test of psychology in a way like you need to you need to manage a lot of the energy in the classroom and something I had to learn when I moved down to kindergarten. And I know I keep talking about moving down to kindergarten. First grade was night and day different, even though they're just a year older. It was it was so different um, once kids have one year of school under their belt like that. Um, but I realized even though I loved all of the joy and the magic and the exciting crafts and things, I could not be the most excited person in the room. And um, I'm a very enthusiastic person typically. And I had to learn to get comfortable with being the one to present what was exciting, um, but then taking a step back and watching them be excited. And that was, it was very interesting, but it's very, um, you know, it's very gratifying too, like watching the kids get excited and not participating in it because it, you just kind of sit and smile and, and enjoy it. But if I, if I raised my energy level in any kind of way, they all copy you. Um, so you have to practice being the calmest, calmest person in the room, even though you're watching this chaos go on around you. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I guess that is like a large difference that doesn't get addressed because each one of those steps in those first couple of years is a major step, like from kindergarten to first grade. In first grade, they now know the system, right? They show up to school. They're going to be here for a while in the middle of the day. They'll get lunch. There's at least, they have some practice in that. Whereas like kindergarten, you're kind of breaking a wild stallion. <laughs> <laughs> you said it, not me. <laughs> hey, I don't have any kids in the system, so I am fine. <laughs> yeah, you're right though. They, it, there's a huge difference. I mean, think about when you start a new job, the first six months that you're there, you're kind of lost. You're, you know, learning who's your friend, who's not, what to do if you're sick and you want to go home early. Like there's all of these systems and things and every school works so differently. I really feel for when people move schools because everyone is just doing what makes sense for that environment. And it might be different, even if it's the school next door to the one you used to go to. So there's, there's a lot to learn. And I wanted to kind of roll back for a second, you know, in talking about like how schools are different, is there a large difference between the East and the West coast as far as schooling goes? Because you had said like the, you know, they moved you to the East coast because it was underserved versus like the West coast that was, had, an overabundance of teachers and was laying people off. You know, there's, I think a lot of that had to do more with um, what was going on with the recession at the time um, because California had some really, it was very bad in California during the recession. There were a lot of cuts that were made by the government there. Um, whereas unfortunately North Carolina has famously always underfunded their schools. And so there weren't any layoffs because um, they weren't paying 
enough to the schools anyway. Um, So that was kind of an interesting thing. But I would say state to state, it really varies. So um, you might have heard of something called the Common Core um, curriculum. And what that was, it came out about 10 years ago. The federal government said, wow, every state is so different that there's not really a predictable outcome of what an American child will know when they're done with schooling. I mean, the difference in what kids could do from different states was incredible. What was being offered, there was not a lot of standardization and even in terms of um, what children, like what coursework they were required to take before their senior year. So um, the government created the Common Core standards and these were supposed to be standards that said, okay, no matter what state you're going to, you will learn these same standards. Um, and now, 10 years later, a lot of states have retracted, have, I'm sorry, let me back this up. So I believe about 48 states agreed to do it, maybe a little bit less. And then now, a decade later, many states have moved away from that and have gone back to their own standards or their their revised version of the Common Core standards. Um, it's So it's, it's wild out there because you can move between states and your child will get a different education. And I'm actually a product of that. My dad was in the military growing up and I was going to school in Southern California in San Diego and I was doing okay with my alphabet and just starting to learn to read in mid-year through kindergarten. We moved to Rhode Island and I went to school there through the end of first grade. So I was about um, six or seven years old. And then, um, there they weren't really teaching me to read or much of the alphabet and you know my parents only know what they know they're doing the homework that was being sent home and they read with me but i wasn't being instructed much about reading at all at that age whereas in california i was um and then when we moved to virginia and i enrolled in second grade my teacher came my parent my teacher came to my parents and sounded the alarm saying your your daughter should be able to read by now she's incredibly behind. Um, and I was in, you know, like reading recovery classes and getting extra support. And, you know, that teacher, thank goodness, got me up to speed by the end of the year. And my parents really committed. But for them, I can't imagine what a roller coaster that was living in three different states in three years. And each state had a different opinion on what a child should be able to know and understand and learn. So there's huge discrepancies between the states in terms of how they're, you know, from how teachers are paid down to what the kids are learning and everything in between um, moving between states is it's like a foreign language. And a lot to the point that a lot of states will ask you to take university coursework to get certified in their state that it's so different, Um, which is for me a, a huge frustration that I have because you would think we all come from the same country. So there should be some standards across the board. Um, But I think, the states come down and argue because you've got some states that are pushing their students to do a lot more. Um, and then you have other states that can't afford to keep up with it. So when they tried to make it the same across the board, it just didn't work. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of countries look at us that way. Like if you were part of my extremely large demographic, that's not in the U S and you look at the United States, it looks huge, but there's 50 different segments inside of it that act like their own countries 
And then inside of each of those, there's, you know, counties and the counties even act differently because I went to two different schools, basically just two growing up. And one of them was like, from what I understand, way above benchmark for educations. Like we were learning multiplication and division in first grade. And then I went to another school for second grade and I was like drastically ahead of them. So much so that my parents pulled me, thinking I was not going to get a good education anymore, put me back in the first school, and then found out I was behind everyone else because of that small time gap that they're like, okay, we have we have made a mistake somewhere across this line, and that's only, you know, moving 30 miles or something in distance. Not even that far, but, you know, a very short distance. So I cannot imagine, you know, measuring state to state like the kind of changes that can happen. Yeah, it's it's really incredible. And I, I can only imagine as a parent how frustrating that is. And I think that's why parents get so concerned about schools because there is such a discrepancy in this country. I mean, you know, you'll hear a lot of politicians, in particular ones with education platforms, talking about um, your zip code really mattering where you go to school. Um, and your zip code essentially is a, is your neighborhood, you know. And it, it's just incredible to realize that kids are performing so differently at different schools. It was something that I faced a lot because we look at the data of students and how they're performing. And sometimes it would be really confusing because you get the data back. You compare, you know, oh, how did my kids do in reading compared to the other kindergarten teachers? Okay, I did all right. How did they compare to the kids in the school district, which, you know, in the county? Oh, okay. Actually, our school did great. How did they compare to the kids in the state? Oh, we did bad. How did they compare to kids in this other state? Oh no, really bad. Like, and so you you go, it's very confusing sometimes to figure out how your students are doing or what is the baseline of what we should be doing because it feels like the mark gets moved all of the time. Um, and and something that also happens too in the United States is the tests gets the tests get changed all the time. So, I mean, in my 10 years teaching, probably every two to three years, I would learn another new test that some company had sold either the state or the district got a big contract with. And this was the test that was going to show them how the kids were doing. And then after two to three years of putting all of my energy into learning that, teaching the kids the test and this and that, the test would disappear and there'd be a new one. And it's... Um, I'm just like, I want to know, how are they doing? Um, and it, it's so frustrating going into a conference because you prevent, you present all of this data to the parents, but you don't, you, you spend more time like understanding the data and explaining the data to them and, and the bar graphs, but you don't talk about the whole child necessarily. And how are they doing in, in my opinion, as somebody that's been doing this for a long time? Um, and so it's something to be worked on. Most teachers, I think, work it out and figure out their way to communicate with people. But behind the scenes, boy, it can be really challenging um, walking through all of that and then learning how to translate it for your students and for parents to understand. Yeah, because you're looking at, I imagine, like just a ton of data because everything you're doing is probably graded, right? Where it's like, here's your reading, here's your writing, here's your language, whatever it is. Like there's a lot of categories and I can't imagine that there is like one place that messes up the curve for everyone else where they're like, oh yeah, 
that's New Hampshire, and New Hampshire always has a hundred across the board. Like, there are, they should be what we're emulating. It's like, no, North Carolina's really good at their writing, and California's really good at their reading, and Montana is good with language. Like, everywhere is, you know, has their own thing that makes them good, but no one is, like, killing it across the board. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think the thing that I really always want to bring home when I'm talking about um, data and children and school performance is that this is not a business. You know, we are in the business of improving little people and building the next generation. And so a lot of times I think where school systems go wrong um, is that you are trying to analyze little kids. And I mean, whether it's actual little kids or 17 year olds, you this is not a bank. This is not, you know, a sales program where at the end of the month you can look at the spreadsheet. You are looking at real people going through real things. And it's really hard to quantify data based off that. Now you can, but I just don't think you need to live and breathe this because there's a lot going on. You know, the growth that one child made in my class that started the year not speaking English is going to look a lot different than the kid that started Montessori preschool at three years old and is acting like a 35-year-old woman, you know? And I'm, I would be proud of all of that growth because what I was looking for is, are they meeting their potential? And, and for me, I know if a child is starting the year and they don't speak English, a lot of those children are silent for months, sometimes even a year. Um, because they're just taking it all in. And that's a really uncomfortable spot to show that they still don't know how to take the test. But like, I can show you that they're functioning in the classroom finally, or they started to make a friend. And those kind of things, I think, really matter too. Um, and sometimes it gets a little lost on the graph, um, the other progress that people are making. Yeah, like you said, there's a large social aspect to this, and it's not like there is a good grading system for, like, how well do you make friends? The image also of, like, a little kid with, like, a receding hairline, a 750 <laughs> credit score, and a 401k, like, really made me laugh, and I had to focus really hard. That's a beautiful image. I yeah. love that. <laughs> it's just, like, he sits down, loosens his ties, like, all right, let's do this. You're like, yeah. You're like, man, you need nap time right now. And, and that was the joy of kindergarten because that's literally what you would get. You would get, I mean, your class is so mixed of of that kid that has the receding hairline and um, the one that isn't going to speak till December and you're going to burst into tears when they say something to you one morning. And then the kid that has never been outside the house before and like has only spent time with their mother and it's just them. And then the kid that has, you know, a hundred cousins and plays a little rough, but he knows how to work the crowd and, you know, and everything in between. Um, and so it's it's funny because when it comes down to the data, like all those kids are going to score differently, um, but they're all going to grow in an incredible way. Um, and so I that was something I had to learn to really hold on to a lot because sometimes I'd walk out of looking at test scores, feeling some kind of way. It's never... Well, I'm not much of a numbers person. Like, I would never get excited to see how they scored on the tests. Like, I would much rather, um, like, I've always loved social emotional development. So, I, I loved seeing like how they've grown and changed in that way. Um, 
Yeah. So I don't know. Your class becomes, you can tell that your class becomes a family to you. Like I'm feeling emotional about these fake children that I don't teach right now, but it's, um, you know, it's, it's just important to know, especially as you see things on the news that kids are a lot more than their data. Um, and actually, if I may, there's a lot of news floating around right now that about the test scores of the children from last school year and saying that this, this is the worst the children have performed on tests in 20 years. Have you seen things like this? Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm always hearing something about education where there's like, you know, coming up, there was no child left behind. And then, yeah. you know, all these things are constantly floating around there. And I think that adds to some of the confusion where people are like, where are we? What's happening? Yeah, there's a lot of that. And yeah, Race to the Top came after that. And now, now there's... Last year was the second was the first real all in person school year after COVID in the United States, and the kids consistently all took state tests, and um, the the test scores are low, uh, in particular for third graders. And you know, I some of the news coverage I think is a little sensational, saying like, oh, like you know, the children are failing, the children can't read, and it's like the children went through something. They're gonna be fine. If we are committed and you send your child to school and you're taking the time to work with them, um, if you're doing the things that you were supposed to be doing even before the pandemic, just give it time. And there are a lot of, um, when I was in school, I remember reading specific studies on children who had been through, you know, war or disasters or long periods of time when they weren't in school. And overall, what's shown is that if, and you see this a lot with children that are learning English as a second language that they will stall and fluster for a couple years because there's so much to make up. But with consistency, children will learn and perform and succeed. Um, and I don't know, it hurts sometimes to see like after everything everyone went through that we're going to slam the kids um, for also going through a pandemic. Like, didn't we all didn't we all just do that and are still doing this? Um so I don't know if you see if you see news like that out there, just know that we're going to be fine um, and it's just another headline and, and the teachers are working hard and hopefully the parents are working hard, too. Yeah, it is not like, oh, all of the teachers gave up because COVID happened and now all of your students are going to be forever behind. Like, no, everyone's playing catch up because it turns out not everyone learns very well through a computer screen yeah at a distance without anyone around because you don't have any of the socialization no one's learning from each other like no one's getting super specialized attention when they need it because everyone else is working just fine it's hard to single somebody out i would think on like a zoom call so like yeah there there's a gap we didn't have a good system set up because we'd never had something like this and now we're recovering from, you know, poor implementation. Yeah. And give it some time. Like, I will be very curious to see in a few years how those scores improve. And um, what I can tell you is schools are working around the clock to make sure that the gaps are being shut and kids who have really fallen behind are um, getting the help that they need. So if somebody is looking to get into the teaching field, what are kind of the, the base requirements to get into any teaching? 
So if you want to become a teacher, I mean, first you're going to need to start with that high school diploma. Um, and then you'll need to start looking at college programs and you'll have some choices. Every state and country works a little different. So if you're in the United States, it is to your advantage to pick the state that you want to teach in because you'll have to jump through some hoops if you want to teach in another state. Usually it's not too big of a deal, but it's something to think about. Just like being a lawyer or a doctor, every state has their own rules about how it's done. Um, so when you go and you pick out the program, I would highly recommend picking programs that have you going into classrooms. Um, eventually you'll you'll do a, you'll have to do some coursework, whether it's a full degree um, or just some classes. Um, and then you'll get into your student teaching, which is when you're going essentially to work every day and you are teaching under the wing of another teacher. And that that's a slow start. You'll start by observing them and then you'll teach a couple lessons. And typically by the end of it, the teacher that whose classroom you've taken over is sitting in the back and you are teaching all day or most of the day. So before you get to the point where you're student teaching, I would highly recommend picking a program that has you doing hours in a school where you get to observe, where you get to volunteer, where you get to, you know, even if it's 10 hours a semester, my program did that. And I learned so much. By the time I got to my student teaching, I had an idea of what grades I wanted to teach. I knew what grades I didn't want to teach. I had a lot of teaching is something that you can learn how to teach math from a textbook, but you cannot learn classroom management from a textbook. And so those one-on-one -on -one hours where you're in a class or practicing are important. I see a lot of online teaching programs. And while I did get my master's degree online and I'm a huge proponent for it, there is something to be said about being in a classroom because kids are weird and they're different and they're going to keep you on their toes. Um, and nothing can prepare you for that moment um, except for hopefully have seen that moment beforehand. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a good point where you're like, you know, you can train people to do anything, but dropping them into the middle of it is a whole nother beast. Yeah. It's, and schools are fast moving. So no matter what grade you pick, just be ready to be on your feet, wear sneakers, um, and just get in there and get, try things out. Um, there's a lot of trial and error in teaching. So you need to be the kind of person that is reflective, but not too hard on yourself. I think that was when I first started teaching, I had a really hard time. I, I did. Like I had a lot of life lessons to learn. I was 21 when I went into the classroom and I just had a lot of life lessons to learn. Like I had just moved to a state by myself for the first time, fresh out of college. Um, and it was really hard for me to manage just being an adult and going to this extremely demanding job too. Um, so I'd really have a think about, you know, what is going on in your life and are you ready to take on something that is a little consuming? I spent a lot of time in my classroom. It becomes another home and you decorate it and you redecorate it every year and um, you eat lunch in there. And it's just, it's a really special job and a really amazing job, but it, it is consuming and it takes a lot from you. So you need to really think about if you want that. And again, circling back, volunteering in a school, which is not that hard to do, like just email a local school if you're not sure um, and say, I'm thinking about becoming a teacher. Can I 
do some volunteer hours. Um, I would I would really check in on that because if you can't handle doing 10 things at once, uh, it is not a good job for you. But if you're a little thrilled by all of that, um, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. So how long is the normal program to get through teaching? Is it like an associate's, a bachelor's, a master's? Typically, um, you'll need a bachelor's degree, um, and then it will be a one year to get your teacher certification. And usually that is a mix of coursework and student teaching involved. Okay. And then, like I heard you say, you know, getting your master's, is there a large advantage to getting a master's when you don't, like, it's not a, a requirement to start teaching? Well, like all things in teaching in the United States, it really depends on what state you're in. So... Um, what I would say, some states, when you get that additional year with your student teaching that I just mentioned, they will technically call that a master's program. Um, however, if we're talking about the other master's degree of just, I want to get better at education or um, leadership in education or something specific where it's already established that you have your degree, um, and your certification, I would say master's programs are really helpful. Most states, except for North Carolina, will give you a pay raise for your master's degree, um, which <laughs> I did proudly get my master's degree. Thank you, uh, Teach for America, for the Johns Hopkins program. Um, but I did not get a pay bump for it. I did that for personal reasons, and it made me a much better teacher. Um, gets you... If you've taught a few years and you want to invest in yourself, it really gets you to rethink some things. Education moves fast. So even, um, you know, I think I was about seven or eight years, seven years into my career when I started my master's, a lot had changed from when I was in my undergrad. And so it was a really good time to reevaluate some of my, what I was doing and reflect and change. And it made me a better teacher. So, you know, if you can be a better teacher and get the pay bump, why not? Absolutely. And that's one of those I was wondering, because it's like, obviously, doing more education and learning more skills is always going to be better for you. It's just like, it, is there a difference that's needed? So that's very good to, you know, very good explanation of it. The other biggest question I had coming into this is I'm like, and I think a lot of people have it because we're very big about the breaks here in the U.S., is like, how do how does pay work? with these weird breaks that we have in our school system where it's like two weeks in the winter and a week in the spring and then three months that you're not working in summertime? <laughs> That's a great question. I get asked that a lot. Um, and so I'll speak for what my experience was. I do think this is similar to most teachers. Um, so we are in North Carolina, we are considered 10 month employees. Um, and so we got paid 10 months out of the year. And then most states, or you can work with like specific banks, will spread your paycheck out into 12 months. So you get a paycheck 12 months out of the year, but you're technically only getting paid 10 months. Does that make sense? Um, <laughs> yes, that is like something I was curious about is I'm like, do you collect a paycheck during the months you work? And then the summer you're like, okay, no paychecks at all. <laughs> yeah. So the way, um, North Carolina, so they used to have it set up with the pay you 12 months out of the year. And then they changed it that you had to work with specific banks. 
I wasn't, I, I was already established with my bank. Um, and so what I would do was I had a monthly summer savings account that I would hide money away from myself. And then I would get a huge paycheck mid June and just like slowly drain the money. But I will tell you that when mid August hits, because we would start working mid August, but you don't get your paycheck till the end of August. And that was ramen noodle month. That was, do we need to go out? Let's hang out at home month. Do we really need Netflix? Like you, <laughs> you start dwindling down. Um, and a lot of teachers do work other jobs, whether it's, you know, babysitting, nannying is really popular because the hours are really fluid in that. A lot of them work summer camps. Um, and then some have established relationships with employers where they can bounce in for two months in the summer. Maybe they pick up a few shifts over winter, holiday break, um, things like that. But yeah, a lot of teachers have um, side hustles and things that they do during that time, too, which really just helps bridge that gap and, and supplement their income. Yes, I, I have a friend of mine that I, for the life of me, even when I started the show, could not convince her to come on. She works in education as well. And so I had asked her kind of like, you know, what do you do for these couple months? And she's like, actually, I get so bored if I don't do anything that not only did I need another job because of the weird paychecks, I just started finding like other work that I enjoyed. And so during the summertime, I'm a bartender. And I'm like, uh, you go from teacher to bartender? She's like, yeah, it's a wild jump, but yes. You know, that's actually more common than you'd think. It feels really funny because I mean, public schools in particular, like it is a federal law, like that you cannot have alcohol on a campus. So to think that you're going and working at a bar right after that is funny. Um, yeah, there's, uh, let's see, I used to know a lot of male teachers are bouncers in their off time, you know, whether it's at the big arena where the big acts come or they're working at a bar as a bouncer. It's a pretty, pretty common one, too. Interesting, because you're like, oh, the same teacher that like loves kids and loves smiling is also the guy at the door that's going to throw you out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We used to know a teacher that worked at a bar and we'd get in cover free sometimes. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, I mean, it, there's no, like, I assume there's no rules that say, like, oh, you can only do specific jobs. Like, it's either bartending or camp counselor. Pick one. Yeah, ex exactly. Yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty much how it is. Yeah. And, I mean, there's typically no official rules, but... Um, I think it's kind of understood that maybe you're not chit-chatting about working at the bar at school. And there's a certain amount of being buttoned up that's expected of teachers. Every once in a while, you'll see something go wild of a teacher getting in trouble for something that people with normal jobs would have no problem doing on the weekend. But um, I think people just kind of know and yeah, maybe you run in, maybe if you're a parent, you run into them bartending on the weekend, you wave and say hi, but you're not talking to the kids about it. Right. Yeah. Just in case your kindergarten teacher is also a semi-pro MMA fighter. <laughs> like, Right. <laughs> have to explain those every Monday where the kids are like, what's wrong with your eye? When I did my student teaching, um, my friend, she uh, was a professional uh, Muay Thai fighter at the time, and she was having issues because she needed to get a bunch of work pants. She couldn't wear dresses student teaching because she had bruises all over her legs from fighting on the weekends. <laughs> and I loved I was like, wow, kindergarten teacher by day and fighter on the weekend. 
right? It's very, it's very almost Batman where it's like my second life kicks in when I put on the different clothes. Yeah, I really, um, when I taught in particular, when I was younger, those, you know, those first few years working, you're hoping nobody will look at you and be like, you, you belong in college still. What are you doing here? Um, I had a, like a very strange disconnection between Natalie and Ms. Parmenter and it was Ms. Parmenter at work. And I feel like I would come home and change. It almost felt like taking off this Batman costume and coming back into my own self, Natalie. And it, it definitely felt like they were two people, um, and I, I have filmed myself a lot teaching, um, both for when I was in grad school um, and then just for personal memories and building the YouTube channel. And it's funny because my teacher voice is so strikingly different. Um, and I, I really heard it. And I, I saw my friend's children the other day and I felt my voice change. And I was like, Miss Parmenter, is that you? You're back? <laughs> That's funny. How has... In, I mean, things are constantly changing, obviously, and the world is changing for different, you know, to accept different things and blacklist different things. How is schooling as far as like, if you're, you want to be a teacher and you have tattoos, is that one of those, like, it's a hard stop, you have to cover these kind of a thing? You know, I think the the view on that is really changing the same way that dress codes and office places have started to change and and everything. I think if you find the right school, you can have your tattoos or your piercings proudly. Um, I have started to see a lot of teachers have fun with their hair color. Or maybe they get some pink highlights, something like that. I think 10 years ago, it was a pretty hard no. But now a lot of schools have really started to change their approach. That said, I think you're going to have to pick and choose and have a pretty good interview. Um <laughs> You're going to have to ask about it or discuss it or be ready to uh, do it now and apologize later if you get told. Um, but I think the view on that has changed a lot. And if you are coming to work with a good personality and doing your job right, uh, you know, who cares what's on your arm? Uh, assuming it's appropriate, though. I mean, I think there are certain tattoos that any workplace would raise an eyebrow at, but you know, for the most part, you can definitely find jobs doing that now. And there's a lot less, um, I guess, I mean, I don't know if it was, if that's considered discrimination, um, but there's a lot less concern about it. Yeah. It's just one of those I was thinking about, cause it's like tattoos are becoming much more prevalent. People are getting piercings that are not like the traditional, just one in each lobe. Um, you know, hair colors are changing. Like for a while I had colored hair just because I figured I could before I lost it all. So I'm like, oh, well, let me, let me dye my hair blue and see what happens. And people like, they look at you different, but it ultimately didn't change much. Um, so I'm like, oh, well, how does this work for this professional setting? Because this seems like one of those more like, make sure you button up the top of your polo or, you know, things like that. So I'm like, how, how strict are we? <laughs> Yeah, it's I think that's a good question because there is certainly a lot of self-censoring that I did. And I would say some of it was just my own personal judgment on things. Um, but I think people are probably going to be a lot more concerned about cleavage or the length of your skirt than they are going to be about tattoos and piercings. Um, 
And to be fair, in kindergarten, you're bending over a lot. So I, I just took all of that out of my life when I was teaching. There was no point because the furniture is so small and the children are so small. You really need to be in pants or leggings or or the kind of clothing you can move in anyway. Yeah, you're like, I need to get two feet from the ground and I that's going to be a, a real stretch for me. Yeah, I, I had to really... Um, I had to really change how I moved. I'd come home and be like, gosh, why is my back hurting so bad? And then um, I realized it's because all of the furniture is so small. It's just hunched over all the time. Yeah. Is there like a best way you found to motivate kids to get like get involved in being more social or into learning a little harder or into reading more like anything like that that you just found like oh yes this is an excellent way to do that so i think it really starts with building relationships with kids and from day one something that i really know is that if a kid doesn't know you and trust you or understand you at least a little bit they feel the good vibes um, you're not going to be able to do much with them and that's a really important part in teaching and why the first month of school is so important. Um, if you have a child in school, you might notice the first week or two is a lot of, you know, just building, community building, getting to know each other kind of stuff. Um, because I'm not going to listen to anybody if I don't know them and trust them. And that's that's just kind of the foundation of how people work. So um, you can't do anything until you have that Um Luckily, if you know how to do it and you're consistent and you try your best to be nice and not yell too much, don't worry, there's not a lot of yelling going on in schools, um, kids start to trust pretty quickly for the most part if they've come from a healthy background um, where they've learned to trust other adults before they trusted you. And then from there, you really just have to use encouraging language. So I'm a huge proponent for using growth mindset. Um, and so growth and fixed mindset has to do with your outlook on how things are. So if you have a growth mindset, you believe that with a little bit of time and effort, you can create change. And if you have a fixed mindset, you believe things are the way that they are and there's nothing you can do about it. It's sort of the argument of, are you born with talent or can you learn to do things? Um, and with children, I really like to build a growth mindset, something that is developed. It's not naturally occurring, though it comes easier to some than others, I think. And what I do is I teach them the language and I use the language of growth mindset. So a lot of kids get stuck on what they can't do. Well, it turns out when you're a kid, you can't do a lot of things. That's why you go to school. And that's why that's why you need so much school because there's so much you can't do when you're that age. But a lot of kids get really down on it. They get really insecure about it. They see kids a year older than them or kids who learned it before them. And it's it's really hard to cope with that because not only can you not read, you also can't ride a bike. You can't even like walk across the street by yourself. There's just so much can't in children's lives. So I really speak to them and talk to them about, you know, yeah, you can't do it. Not yet. But what are some steps we can take to learn or how can we practice this and really show them that if you put a little time and effort into things, you can change that for yourself. Um, and then the, I pair that with um, real examples for them. So something I love to do in kindergarten was I would occasionally collect and keep their work and um, show them a couple months later how much they had changed. And that was one of my favorite things. We would make a time capsule for the year. Um, but I would have them, you know, complete a worksheet in August 
can't even write their names. Some of them can't spell, don't know how to draw a picture of a person yet. And then um, maybe I would pull it out in December and say, like, guys, look, this is like you were a hot mess back then. Look at you. You didn't know how to draw this. And now look at the pictures you just drew. Now look at how neat your name is written. Now look at you know what colors to use. And you kind of show them this cause and effect before and after. And I think it really encourages kids and, and empowers them. Um, and then the word I love to teach them was persistence, um, which is really fun to listen to young children say persistence and persistent. And um, and we had a cheer that we did in class and I had a poster hanging up in, on the wall about being persistent. And um, I would highlight kids that had been persistent on something and we would celebrate the kids. And, you know, I might pick out an example of a child. Let's say they you know, tried to sound out this word three different ways and they finally got it. So I'd bring them up and they would show that how they tried it the different ways and finally read it. Um, but after I would pick out the kids for a couple of weeks, the kids would start to come to me and say, oh my gosh, did you see my friend? They were just persistent or I was persistent today. And um, when you build this community, it takes a lot of thought because you can't forget to point these things out. They're so simple for you and me, but they're big deals for kids. Um, they start to internalize that and realize themselves how much they can do. Yeah. And then I imagine this like, you know, smash cut to kid at home and they say persistence and the adult like turns real slow and looks at their kid and is like, did you just say persistence? That was a <laughs> big word for you. <laughs> oh, exactly. I, oh, I love teaching little kids big words because they, it's just so funny to hear them say it. It's so unexpected. <laughs> That's really funny. So kind of the last thing before we got out of here, I wanted to ask, you know, as we, we talked about at the top of the show, why you ultimately decided to leave, you know, your teaching career and leave kindergarten and such. Yeah, I'm glad you asked. It was a really hard decision. And actually, a lot of my videos on the Primary Focus YouTube are about deciding to leave and what this year is like. This is my first year out of the classroom. Um, there are a lot of reasons why I decided to left, leave. Um, and ultimately, what was happening was a lot of the joy that I'm thinking about reminiscing on teaching and describing it to you right now. I'm I'm missing teaching, talking to you. Um, was that there were a lot of things getting in the way of that joy. And a lot of the joy that I had in the classroom was starting to be suppressed. And it came from a lot of angles. Um, and I think one of the biggest ones is that the state that I live in, North Carolina, fundamentally is against funding education. And try as they might, try as some politicians might, um, year after year, budgets are not raised. Um, pay will be has been frozen at different points they got rid of master's pay and for me at some point i realized that this was a dead end in terms of my financial future and that i was making less and less every year with inflation and that was really hard to swallow because i had spent 10 years really waiting and hoping and voting and advocating for things to change but at some point i realized that it had to be me that made the change. So that was a really hard thing um, to go through. And then, you know, on top of it, there are a lot of problems in education because we are still learning how to educate and what we want children to get from school. You know, I think 
and even I just said, there's a lot of problems in education. And I think what I really mean is there's a lot of growth to be had in education because we're all just humans trying to figure this out. But the solutions and things that were being tried didn't always make sense. And a lot of times, a all the time, tons and tons and tons of extra responsibilities landed on me. Um, and that was really hard because I was getting less and less time that I could be teaching my students and getting more and more paperwork. So I was paid for showtime every day, the eight hours that I spend in front of my students teaching. And I had no time to prepare the lessons, no time to run the photocopies. And then they were just putting more and more work on top of us. Um, endless data analyzing, endless meetings, trainings. I think I mentioned that you know, the test would change every couple of years. Well, the amount of training that it takes for each test and then the amount of time it takes to test the kids and then you have meetings about the test and just a lot of my time was not spent with my students anymore. And the time that I did get with my students, I felt stressed and like I didn't have time for my students, which is exactly why I was there. So um, I had I had a lot to think about. I knew that I did not want to leave North Carolina. I, I really love my life here. Um, and so I I talked with my husband and we decided to see what it would be like if I changed careers and, and made some changes. So here I am now. It's been a very interesting time because teaching is really an identity. I think the same way, I, I don't know, there are just certain jobs like doctor, lawyer, you say that and there is a meaning behind that. And I loved the meaning of what teacher meant. Um, and I loved the pride that I felt saying teacher, but I wasn't feeling that in my day to day anymore. Um, and at some point I realized like something I had chosen out of passion had been taken away. So unfortunately, I, I had to pivot and and change. But um you know, I also feel really happy with it too. I feel like I'm I've rediscovered a lot of things in my life. I realized that I used to be really really stressed out all the time and and now I feel a lot more peaceful and I'm really grateful for that. Uh and then part B, you asked me would I recommend the job to people? Um Yes and no. I think you need to know what you're getting into. I think there are some old beliefs that teaching is um and this is, I'm such a feminist, it's hard for me to say this. I think there's a belief that like teaching is a mother's job or a woman's job or a job where you go and then you have summers off and then you're home in time for your kids. And, you know, it like this picture of work-life balance and um, it's not, <laughs> there's a huge commitment with teaching. So, but if you feel drawn to it, it's, it can be so fulfilling if you find your place, if you find the school where you're getting along with everybody. Um, and if you're willing to stand up for yourself too, because one way that I made it so long was I learned how to start saying no to some of the things coming down my way um, and how to shield things out that um, felt like a waste of my time or, <laughs> you know, do the bare minimum on them. So I, I wouldn't say no completely, but I think if, any of this sounds like you don't want to do it. Um, you should you should think about it long and hard, yeah. or don't go to, don't go to North Carolina. <laughs> yeah, if you're seeing any of the red flags, like pay attention to them, and that is ultimately just really disappointing that we are not we're not investing 
in our children's future because we're not investing in the teachers that we need to bring up our next generations. And that's like, that's a real bummer for me because I had some teachers growing up that like really shaped my life, really made me who I am. And it's like, that's heartbreaking to think that like, oh, they're not getting any pay increases despite inflation. And they're not, you know, they're only being added more responsibilities and it's taking away from, you know, all this time they otherwise get to spend with their students. Like that's really terrible. And so it's hard to hear. And I, I hope deeply that that changes and, you know, becomes a better situation and that people are not, you know, avoiding or leaving the field because of things like that. I, yeah, it's, it's really hard to think about and talk about because education is so important. Um, and it's where we all come from, but I think sometimes when it comes to the funding, it, it becomes the last priority. Um, and I know I'm talking a lot about public schools specifically, but I really want to note here, um, private schools and charter schools are just copycats of the public schools. They've just cherry picked what they liked. Um, and so I didn't, I chose to leave teaching instead of trying in a private school for a lot of reasons, but also because I know the private schools in my area make their pay scales based on the local public schools. Like they're only competing with that. And it is common for private schools to actually even pay less than public schools um, because they're advertising that your kids can go to the private school for half price or free or, um, you know, other advantages that some people might need. I don't have any children, so that was not uh, an, an advantage for me. Um, but, you know, I think the big system has to change because the little systems are just reactions to the big system. Yeah. yeah. Um, but there is keep your eye out on the American Teacher Act. It was it's a bill that's been put forward by Frederica Wilson, um, and it's to set a minimum wage for teachers at $60,000, um, saying this would be the minimum a teacher anywhere can make. Um, and I know in some states that might feel very different. I know like Massachusetts and California pays their teachers a lot more. In North Carolina, I could have only dreamed of making $60,000 a year. And so when I really hope that that goes through, I know it's got a big fight ahead of it, but Keep your eye on that. And if that's something that's interesting to you and you live in the United States, um, contact your local congressperson and let them know that you care about the American Teacher Act. Yeah, absolutely. Because that is a major thing. Like, yes, in California, where the cost of living is extremely high, you know, and so wages are inflated that much more so to compensate, 60000 is not a lot. But if you are in a lot of other states, frankly, like... You know, West Virginia comes to mind first. Their average pay is nowhere near 60000 So, like, that is a, a major bump that does help a lot of people. And that's the first step into, like, we can help all teachers by helping the base level move up. Yeah. And, you know, you're naming a state that has pretty big teacher shortage. It's hard to attract teachers there, um, especially if you're competing with states that can fund a little bit more. So... I, I hope that goes through and uh, I think it says a lot. I know I've heard some pushback from negative comment people online that they don't think $60,000 is worth it. Um, but I think if you wake up and look at inflation and look at how um, a lot of corporations have changed their hourly wage, it is an appropriate bump, if not more, a lot more for teachers because, I, you know, there's a lot of stories of people leaving 
teaching and and going to work for Target or Amazon or Walmart and matching or increasing their salaries from there. And those are fine places to work, but considering the amount of degrees and hoops you jump through to become a teacher, um, it's hard to think about you know, putting that to the side to do something that didn't take as much training. Yeah, certainly going from, you know, a bachelor's degree over to an entry level job that you could get with a high school diploma. Like that's, that's a huge bummer for me. But I do look forward to seeing, you know, hopefully that act goes through and does get into place. I would like to see that personally just for, you know, all the teachers that I do know and people like yourself where like, this is a huge major change and it can affect a lot of people in a good way. So I hope that goes through. That'll have to be like a follow-up segment. And maybe you'll let me know if, if something like that goes through and then we can share it on the show and be like, it did it. We did it. It worked. Otherwise I have appreciated your time immensely. I know I've kept you around here for a while, <laughs> but I wanted to make sure that you were able to share with everyone where they can find you and where they can find more of your stuff and your content and everything like that. Thanks. Um, and I'm looking forward to our celebration party. I can't wait for this act to pass. <laughs> um, yeah, if you want to find me, um, you can find me on my website, primaryfocus.tv. Um, and that will lead you to my YouTube videos, my newsletter sign up. Um, my YouTube is Primary Focus. Um, if you want to find me on Instagram, it's Primary Focus underscore because somebody else took my username. But um, yeah, my website, primaryfocus.tv, will lead you down all of those roads. Awesome. And then as with interacting with any form of entertainment, if you go to Primary Focus and you like what Natalie's doing and you want to see more of it, hit the subscribe button. That's a huge boost. Hit a like button if you especially enjoy an episode. And then just drop literally any comment. I know most people don't recognize this, but literally any comment, even if it's just like good, just the word good with a period, like that boosts the creator's content as well up the chain, up the algorithm, and then they get seen more. So it's a huge thing for your creators. You are totally right. Yeah, a little bit of interaction does so much for me. Um, and, you know, if you have anything you want to say, I'm, I'm very open. You can DM me or shoot me a line. Um, I love talking to people and I'm always looking for ideas. So if you have a question about education or kindergarten or why I quit teaching, um, let me know because other people are probably wondering that too. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you again for being here. I immensely appreciate this. Thank you so much for your time. Do you feel more informed having listened to this episode of the Just Dumb Enough podcast? If so, please take a brief moment to rate the show five stars on iTunes, Spotify, or Audible. If you really liked it, remember to subscribe for more episodes and check out the nearly 100 episode backlog I've built up. Let me know what you'd like to hear next by reaching out and emailing me dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com or send a message on any of the show pages like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or wherever else. I'm always looking for new topics, guest ideas, and questions from the audience. That's it for this week. Enjoy your weekend, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and I'll see you all Monday. Bye bye